right. Welcome to the Built for the Trades podcast. This is your host, Dan Dowdy. And this podcast is all about growing men and women in the trades through leadership development. And man, there's so many great trades out there and there's so much great information to learn that leadership's a lifelong journey. So if you're here, welcome. We want to grow this podcast audience uh, organically. So if you like what you hear, please like it, subscribe, share it with a friend and leave us a review. So today, we're switching gears here on the trades. We're, we're going to be talking to a fourth generation elevator tradesman. We have uh, Chris Gutkiss on the phone. He is the president of Island Elevator at a Long Island, New York. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me, Dan. I've been looking forward to uh, talking with you. It's been, it's been a long time waiting. I think uh, I think I waited like three months for this. Uh, it has been a long time uh, waiting, and it's good to have connections in the trades, right? I mean, good to have good referrals to come on these podcasts and be able to share information and, and you have such a great story. So I can't wait for the audience to hear your story. So let's just dive right in. Um, go ahead and okay, kind of just, so let, let, let's, let's start actually before you get into the elevator talk, let's talk about just you and your family and maybe some hobbies that you have and then, and then start to, to take us into uh, your experience in the army. Let's go there. Um. So going all the way back when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in an elevator family. I'm fourth generation and it, it, it was everywhere. So all of my uncles, um, my father, my grandfather, my grandfather was president of uh, the, the local union. So every, every time we had a party, everybody was there and it only takes like 10 minutes or so before everybody starts talking about what job they're on or what they're doing. And, uh, you know, where are you working? Who are you working with? And you, did you get stuck paired up with that donkey? And, you know, oh, I, I was with that guy. He was the worst. So um, and it's it, it kind of piques your curiosity when you're young, but then you kind of get distracted and you go jump in a pool or something like that. Um but as I was going through, because I had heard of it so much, like it was just, I'm just inundated with elevators, elevators, elevators. And I am uh, different, right? I'm a different kind of guy. And, and I'm not going to get into elevators. I'm going to, I'm going to show everybody that I can, I can make it. I can do it as for, for something else. And I went, graduated high school and I did like a, you know, a cup of coffee at a local community college. And then I was like, ah, I got I to get out of here. You know, I'm just like, I'm tired of my parents they're tired of me and all of my bullshit (laughs) and they uh and the recruiter calls me up and i said you know what now's a good time let's do it so i show up there and i sit at the um uh at the recruiting table and they 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 open up this book it's like a phone book and they ask you to pick out your job and next to each of the jobs this is the best part If, if anybody's planning on getting to the army make sure that you sober up first you get you get in there and they give you the um the the layperson equivalent, the civilian equivalent of the job that you're signing up for. So I look at it and the job that I'm signing up for is equivalent to an accountant. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I took an accountant class in high school. So if I do this, can I be an accountant when I get out? And the recruiter's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you just take a couple of college classes. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I'll sign up. And then I get in uh, and they, they run you through everything else. I get in the bus. I'm with like four other people that are going down to uh, basic training mm-hmm. and every job in the army has an alphanumeric code on it. So mine was 92 alpha. So I'm through there and everybody's like, oh, well, what are you going to be? Oh, I'm going to be infantry. Oh, I'm going to be this or I'm going to be that. And they're like, what about you, Gutkiss? And I'm like, uh, I'm going to be an accountant. They're like, an accountant? That's amazing. Uh, What job did you sign up for? And I was like, 92 alpha. They were like, oh, you're not going to be an accountant. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm a 92 alpha. I'm a supply specialist. I'm like, oh no. So I haven't even like gotten, I, I'm not even at basic training yet. And I've already like realized that I've just signed away four years of my life on something that I thought that I, I was doing, but I ended up not doing. Oh, wow. So I, I got in, they train you as a, uh, a supply specialist and I was accounting. I was accounting nuts and I was accounting bolts because uh, I wasn't doing anything <laughs> on spreadsheets. That's for sure. And then uh, when I got out, um, I got out in February of 2001 before 9-11. So I was peacetime military and we're uh, and I needed a job right away. Yeah. And my father at the time, he uh, owned an elevator company. So he was he started out in the field. He started his first elevator company in 89. Uh, the company got into some bad contracts, didn't do well. They split it. He was regional at the time. Then he took everything on Long Island, paired up with his cousin, and they started the first iteration of Island Elevator in 1999. So when I got back home in 2001, it was just a two-man shop, and I asked him, uh, you know, can I get a job? And he put me out to work the next day. 
And uh, I went and I, as soon as I was in front of the elevator equipment, I was addicted. Uh, I just it, it fed every sense of what it is that I wanted to be, uh, you know, what, what it is that I found value in myself. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed the cerebral nature of it and the problem solving. And there were so many moving parts and there were so many flashing lights. It was like, it, I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, this is going to be massively difficult to learn. And I want to learn it. I was just energized by being around all of this heavy duty moving equipment. That's it's really heavy and it's really fast. But at the same note, it's like, all of the control circuits are really delicate and really, you know, uh, you know, logic based. And, and mm -hmm. it kind of it, it fed every part of my personality. So I got out. Um, then my grandfather found me a spot with a uh, an international elevator company called ThyssenKrupp. Uh, I worked out of their Long Island office. Uh, I had a really exceptional mechanic who taught me so much. I mean, he basically taught me how to make a living. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, I stayed there for about three and a half years. Then my father broke up with his partner, uh, hired me on. So now it was just me and him in a windowless office in Wine Dance, New York. And we built the company up from there. And today we have uh, 34 employees. We do all of the, we're a full scale elevator company that services Long Island exclusively, which is special because either uh, companies on Long Island they either do a lot of some of the little things mm -hmm. or they do all of the things and they go into the city. So we don't go into the city, but we provide all of the services for, you know, for the Long Island community. Okay. Very cool. So, I mean, you're talking to a tradesman who's from a small town, Texas. I, I was just thinking before this podcast, I don't think we have a building in this town with an elevator. So that's kind of funny. You'd but, be surprised. Uh, we Dude, might. Since, we since the American Disabilities Act, anything that has more than one floor needs to provide access to those that are uh, net, uh, in need. Yeah. So you could have one-story buildings with a basement. There's an elevator in there. Uh, there you go. Yeah, we probably We're do. sneaky like that. We probably do. So going back to the Army, I just want to ask a quick question here on, on the Army and leadership. Was there anything that you've taken away from the Army that's helped you get to where you're at today? Uh, when I was in the Army, I was a petulant, uh, you know, um, smart-ass, that, you know, thought that he knew better than everybody. And uh, I was maybe a little bit too smart for my own good at some points. Yeah. And I remember um, I had a really difficult time trying to get to where it is that I wanted to be. And I had a, uh, a staff sergeant who happened to be in the unit because he was taking a break. He was like a special forces guy. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know, maybe he got in trouble or something, but he was there and he pulled me aside one day and he was like, listen, he's like, um, you know, for all of the angst and the anger and and the way that you kind of like weaponize uh, how, how it is that you talk to people, mm -hmm. you could just as easily use those same gifts and abilities instead of trying to make people feel bad about themselves because I was really insecure. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to try to bring people down to my level because I just didn't feel good about myself. And he was like, instead, you can use those same skill sets of being able to read and talk to people and build people up. So mm -hmm. it kind of pivoted my uh, my perspective on interpersonal relationships. I was a very, you know, me centric person, especially, you know, late teens, early 20s, as many of them are. And I'm trying to find my way in the world and, and I'm struggling and I don't really know what's going on. So uh, I guess that was like my first um, uh, experience with understanding that there are bigger things at play and that if you can make if you can build people up, you can build yourself up at the same time. That's that's really good, man. I'm, I'm glad I asked that question because that is so true. And um, and, and I want to dive in a little bit to in 2001, you went to work for that big elevator company. Um, just thinking about that that technician that you worked under and what he taught you along the way, besides just taking the time to teach you the trade, um, how valuable was that for your progression as you look back on your story? Uh, be meaning the experience of being an apprentice. Yeah. And, and I, I think you hadn't mentioned that you worked under a really good technician who taught uh, you a this lot. This guy was like a mad scientist okay. and let's not confuse things here. It's yeah. not like he was like, Hey, Chris, you know, you seem like a pretty decent dude here. Let me show you how to do everything. <laughs> That's just not how it worked when I was coming up through the trades. So what 
I was there and this dude possessed an immense amount of knowledge. And when I got into the industry, I'm, you know, I'm told, listen, you're an apprentice. Okay, that's great. But I didn't have the mindset of an apprentice. Mm -hmm. I always told myself that I am not, I'm not going to be an apprentice a day longer than I have to. I am a mechanic in training. So as I'm, I'm around and, and uh, seeing what he's doing, I'm soaking up the experiences and, and I just really need to make sure that I understand everything that he's doing. So there's a lot of questions and the timing of those questions, you know, you get a better, you get better at that with maturity as opposed to when you're there and then you're just peppering your uh, mechanic who's trying to worry about other things, except for what, what's going on in his ear from this, you know, kid who just got out of the army. Yeah. But, um, it was really about uh, what he was able to do and touch and influence. And then once he saw that I wasn't a joke, so I showed up to work on time every day. I worked my butt off. I did everything that he asked me to do. And then when I asked him questions, I wasn't asking him the same question four, five, six times. I was able to ask. I was able to absorb. And then I was able to execute. And then as that happens over time, they build trust. And then he becomes a little bit more open, responsive and forthright with his experience and his knowledge in order to be able to benefit me in my career. I hope that answers your question. Man, that was good, Chris. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it better myself. I mean, really going through that progression of building trust. I hope people are listening to that because it's not just a matter of showing up and, and expecting to have things given to you because, you know, you feel entitled or whatnot. Right. It's actually showing up and putting in the work. It's really uh, there's there's two uh, foundational, you know, keystones for mm -hmm. leadership and really trying to, like, take control and get the things that you want out of life. And number one is self-awareness. And the other one is empathy. And as a young man, I did not have a lot of empathy. And unfortunately, especially for apprentices, you don't actually gain that empathy most times uh, unless you have somebody in your family that's kind of letting you know, hey, listen, shut your mouth. It's really hard being a mechanic. Once you become the mechanic, then you're like, oh, wow, I was so annoying as a helper. So <laughs> they, they, because you're, you're interfering with them, you don't realize you don't fully appreciate the fact that this uh, this um, tradesman or mechanic or however they're referred to in their, their respective industry, mm -hmm. they are not just responsible for themselves and for the job and for customer relations. And if they're a helper, they might be, uh, excuse me, if they're a foreman, they might be responsible for other mechanics, but they're also responsible for their own safety and your safety. Mm. So it's they've got a lot going on in their brain. So once you start peppering them with all of the thought bubbles that pop into my head, it's it, it, it can get a little stressful. So if you don't exercise empathy, it's going to be harder for you to understand that they need to see commitment to what it is that they're doing, because it's a waste of time for them to keep teaching you the same thing over and over again and telling you the same thing over and over again. And then if you exercise self-awareness and you realize, hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a, I'm somebody that's. Uh, at a lower level of, uh, of knowledge and understanding, but I want to be up, I need mm -hmm. to make sure that I kind of take my own temperature so that I'm not interfering with the job I'm adding to the job. And then once they see you as a valued asset, they don't want you to go anywhere. So they want to mm -hmm. give you as much information and knowledge and experience as possible because now I'm making his job easier. Have you been successful in, in teaching your apprentices in your company currently how to have that kind of initiative, or is that something that just comes with the person? Uh, part of it comes with the person. So yeah. I can teach it all day long, but if you're not willing to absorb it and then execute it, then there's not really much more that I can do for you. Uh, but one of the things, because I'm also an instructor of apprentices, I'm a certified instructor for the CET program, which is a certified elevator technician, okay. which is a book learning education that associates the process along with on the job training in order to get your elevator licensing in the state of New York. So I'm part of uh, Elevator Learning Center that provides this, uh, this we're the related instruction for that uh, program. Mm -hmm. And one of the course, one, one of the topics that I teach while I'm in my course, and we're learning about basic electricity and we're learning about this, that, and the third, but I'm telling them that you have to, at this point, you all have about two years in the industry. It's time to let go of the helper mentality. Stop waiting for everybody to tell you to do everything that needs to be done. You need to start absorbing things and then being proactive instead of reactive. So mm -hmm. stop waiting. 
And when they come in and then the, and then we're like, all right, we're getting through unit two. Dude, uh, how many people here read unit three? Some of them don't read unit three. And I'm like, stop waiting for me to tell you to you read unit three. Right. Because once you get out there, what trade were you in, uh, Dan? Plumbing. Plumbing. Yeah. Plumbing is complicated and there's lots of different applications of plumbing. Mm -hmm. If you're just waiting for somebody to teach you that one thing and then expect you to do that one thing 10,000 times over the course of your career, guess what, buddy? You're not going to be a plumber very long, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be driven enough to get outside of your comfort zone, get comfortable being uncomfortable, and then find that information, bring it in, and then let it enrich you. It's called personal, it's called professional development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much lack of thinking nowadays uh, because everything is is right in front of you and given to you for the most part, right? That the whole generation of people that are being raised up and have been raised up that we're now leading in the trades and they're a part of a part of what we do. So the problem is that they have all, they have the entire, like uh, the, <laughs> almost an entire history of the world's knowledge at their fingertips. And they still play dumb. Don't yeah. play dumb with me. And I tell them, I said, listen, I, I'm taking time to send you YouTube videos about understanding basic electricity and you guys aren't watching it, but I know that you're watching something. So mm -hmm. take them, take the seven minutes and watch the stuff that's applicable, that's actually going to help you develop and turn you into what it is that I hope that, well, why would you waste your time coming to school if you're not actually trying to be a mechanic? Yeah. And then once you yeah. become a mechanic, and you know, this as being in the plumbing is mm -hmm. that once you become a mechanic and you go out into the real world, you're not just dealing with the things that you learned how to deal with. You're dealing with every plumber's installation for the last hundred years. Right. So mm -hmm. you can't just know what you want to know. You have to know as much as you possibly can. If you want to have a fighting chance at making a career, because this is what we're talking about. You want to feed your family. Right. Yeah, Are we trying it. not to feed our family? You can't do it if you just do that one thing. Guess what? If, if it was only one thing that needed to be done, Amazon would invent a robot that did it and you wouldn't have a job. Right. Our ability to learn and, and grow and expand our knowledge base is the only thing that differentiates us from. You know, robot, mm -hmm. you know, ro uh, you know, automated systems doing our freaking jobs. I know. Yeah, I just finished a, a technician training this last week, and it was all about building confidence. And uh, one of the easiest, lowest hanging fruit that we all can control is just a matter of what are we doing when we're off the clock? Are we actually learning the products and services that we offer? That alone right there can elevate anybody's confidence. But it's like everybody's waiting to learn it on the job which could take, you know, years and years and years uh, versus just cutting that time in half by watching some YouTube videos or doing some research online and reading some books. The question is, do you want to be special? Do you want to be exceptional? And mm -hmm. if uh, if our if this new generation that's coming up had their parents, which is basically you, me and our generation, we're the ones who screwed this whole thing up. Right. <laughs> so our generation screwed us on this end. So now we're looking and they told everybody that they were already special. Right. My yeah. father, my father, God rest his soul, never told me I was special. Now, does that screw a guy up a little bit? Maybe a little <laughs> bit. Maybe I got some daddy issues. But the bottom line <laughs> is, is that, you know, if you're constantly being told that you don't need to do any more than what you're doing right now in order to be beautiful and, and, and just as wonderful experience on the world, mm -hmm. then you really don't understand how far you are away from what is truly exceptional. Man, that's powerful. That's really powerful. So, Chris, I, I have to ask this question. You mentioned 9-11. You're from New York or you're in New York. And uh, just kind of take me through what whatever you want to share with me during that time. You know, looks like you were just diving into the elevator trade right at that time and all that's going down. Anything there that you'd like to share with our audience just about where you're at and the whole experience? Being around that. everybody has a story about 9 11 mm -hmm. so uh, and then new yorkers they all and then especially the tradesmen they all because most of them are on these jobs and a lot of the work that's around is in this inner around the city mm -hmm. so uh me personally i was on top of a uh a roof in queens everybody that was around for 9 11 knows that it was a beautiful day in new york i mean there wasn't a single cloud in the sky so in mm -hmm. this rooftop in queens i could see all the way down to lower manhattan at the trade center where my brother who's also in the elevator industry was working that day mm 
So yeah. the only reason why, so I'm watching this whole thing happen. And the first thing, uh, what, what happened was we were at coffee break because the first one hit around like nine ten or something like that. Mm-hmm. So they said, Oh, it was a terrible accident playing hit the, the, uh, the trade center. And we we're like, Oh my God, that's horrible. And then 20 minutes later, they're like, Oh, another one. We were like, Holy shit, this is not an accident. So mm-hmm. I go up to the roof and I see what everybody else sees on TV, except now I'm a little like freaked out because my brother is over there. So, uh, mm-hmm. and then as everybody knows, so I saw uh, the smoke pop up, and then next thing you know, one of the buildings was gone. All the cell phone service was gone. Um, I, I didn't know what was going on. You know, pay phone, cell phone, whatever it is. In 01, not everybody had a, a cell phone. Yeah. So uh, long story short is that on my way home, I found out that uh, my brother and all of the elevator tradesmen made it out because they had um, they had taken a break. My brother was actually supposed to be on the 88th floor like an hour later. So if this whole thing happened an hour later, then he wouldn't have been with us. Wow. And one one elevator tradesman, um, Costello, he actually came from a separate job and went and took the uh, the train over to the trade center because in the first trade center bombing in, in the 90s, mm-hmm. the, uh, the elevator trade made, uh, they played a critical part in being able to free people from the elevators. They took like helicopters up to the roof and they, the elevator trade knows, they know the whole building. So mm-hmm. we know our, our way in and out. So he went there because he thought that it was going to be uh, they were going to need some more help like they did in the 90s. And then everything came down and he perished. So oh, um, mm. then on my way back. So we drove back. Obviously, they shut down all of the transit. They shut down the bridges. They shut down the LIE. Uh, but at the time when I got out of the army, I was actually in the National Guard. So I got recalled to the National Guard like the next day. So uh-huh. I went out there. Um, and then like 24 hours later, they're trucking us into, uh, an army in Brooklyn. And for the next two weeks, I did, um, 12 hours on 12 hours off, uh, guarding the pile while everybody else was, uh, doing their thing. Wow. So, and then I've had some other friends that uh, elevator trade, if you knew welding, if you knew cutting, they were on the pile. Uh, some of them got cancer. Some of them got, uh, you know, uh, really jacked up over the years. Hmm. So, um, me, fortunately, you know, um, but there was uh, it was crazy. And, I'm, you know, my brother, he ended up leaving there. And then I think he ended up walking all the way uptown. And then he either got on the last train out of Penn Station or they, they had to walk over a bridge. I can't remember. It's, he, he would have to tell me that. But he was there while everything was just kind of like happening. So he's got like some really like really graphic stories that um, mm. uh, make me uncomfortable when I think about it. Mm. Wow. Is your brother still in the trade? Yeah, my brother works uh, with us here at Island Elevator. Awesome, man. I didn't know that. So, That's cool. Is, it, yeah. is there any other family members that, that are there with you besides y'all two? Uh, well, let me think. I don't know. Everybody feels like family on one level or another, yeah. uh, especially when you're building up a company from uh, from zero. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, um, we, we hire a lot of people that we know um as far as friends like lifelong friends and stuff like that and then as you start to mature as a company you start to hire more experienced people because the more experienced people feel more comfortable coming over mm-hmm. because they you know we don't look like donkeys so <laughs> but my brother joined uh island elevator probably like a year or two after me we started growing out and then in 2016 my father died suddenly so i became mm. shotgun president of island elevator mm. uh everything that i had done up until that point was about me being the, the best possible technician and field technician as possible uh and then training other people how to do the same work and ha- how to work on and troubleshoot elevators and then when when he passed a week later i sat in the chair and i was like i don't know what the hell i'm going to do now because i didn't learn how to do any of this oh, so wow. that's been a um that's been a, 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 a i don't even know what <laughs> it's been it's been it happened <laughs> it, ha- it, it happened right it happened <laughs> I mean, if you had the fear of failure, right, you probably would have just froze and and digressed from there. But uh, kind of take the audience Uh, through. It's all about it's all about how you deal with um, it's all about how you deal with that. So, you know, fear of failure has been a, uh, a motivator of mine for a long time. So, but I run, I run towards the problem. I don't run away from the problem. So you can, you know, it's fight or flight or something like that. And I, Mm -hmm. I have a fight in me. So that's what kind of helped me to kind of put my head down and, and I got a really strong work ethic. So I just kind of drove right through that as hard as I possibly could. Um, But it also interfered with a lot of that, that fight mentality. Mm -hmm. That's something that I had to try to unlearn when 
I really, when I realized that my leadership skill set was, um, it was, it was poor at best and not yeah. where it needed to be in order to allow the company to, to grow, um, independently of my, at the time, a lot of micromanaging. Uh, okay. Okay. So yeah, a lot of control over it. And, and it, it's crazy when you're in that, when you're in that time and you're doing that, it's hard to see outside yourself and realize what you're doing. So what helped you see that and kind of grow beyond that? Uh, it's a couple of things. Number one was, uh, my brother, right? Yeah. Uh, he was a honest reflection of my, uh, my, um, my very imperfect temperament mm -hmm. to put it politely. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when I was pushing, he pushed back as opposed to other people, when you're hiring to bring them on, you push. And then they just kind of like, they go with it because they, because they're worried. My brother's not worried. He'll just tell me to, you know, kick rocks, pound sand. I don't care about that. So I realized that if I can't move my brother, that I'm probably not doing, you know, if I can't move him in the direction that I need him to go and then I probably can't move anybody else. And that's when it started to reflect on me there. And as I'm kind of like managing my way through all of the stress of, and, and insecurity of not knowing what I'm doing with the company yeah. and not knowing how to set a direction and not knowing how to, you know, fix all of the things that needed to get fixed. Uh, I'm drinking a lot. So uh, it, it was a, there was a little bit of drinking while I was in high school mm -hmm. and then you hit the army and then everybody's drinking, you know, it's like uh, college for high school dropouts. So <laughs> we're, we're, and then when I got out, it was more of an extension of that. And it was very, um, it was, uh, it, it was part of the social uh, contract with tradesmen where, you know, when you left work and you went out, you know, you shared a beer or you're at a union meeting or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the stress and all of that stuff as I'm trying to build up the company, and this is before my father passed, um, I was, you know, I was drinking more and more and more until finally I got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm like a raccoon. I'm like running through the house trying to find anything that has booze in it. Okay, you know, boom. And, uh, and then and then I hit my moment where um, I was like, Oh, okay, this is this is it. I can't do this anymore. You know, I like woke up on my car. And uh, I was like, this is uh, this is not who I want to be. And I want to get out of the drinking game. Because my father got sober in his 30s. My uncle got sober in his 30s. So I, I had like some role models that said, yes, this has been done before. Okay. And uh, I got um, I wanted to get out of the drinking game. So that when I said, I'm sorry, when I apologize for something, it still meant something, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't kill somebody's kid. I didn't, uh, you know, change somebody's life. Yeah. Uh, I was just a, I was just an asshole when I drank. So once I made that decision and I moved on from there, it started to obviously for the first couple of years, um, you, when, when you're sober for the first couple of years, it's really weird because you're kind of getting to know the old you before you used to drink. So you're just like, you're, you're like in this weird space, like, who the hell am I? You know, how, how do I act? I don't know how to act. Usually I would be drinking by the time I did this. Mm -hmm. Then you start to get more comfortable. My wife uh, is a therapist. So she kind of taught me like this mind mindfulness thing. Yeah. And that kind of helped me to like deal with the stress. And then when I started dealing with that, I realized that every time I got exceedingly stressed, that's when I would go ahead and drink. So I realized I had a stress management problem. Hmm. And as I once I started coming to terms with who I actually was outside of drinking, like my identity, who, who I actually was, my personality yeah. and feeling comfortable who my personality was, because, you know, you, you so closely identify with drinking and being drunk and hanging around those circles that you find you, you kind of lose yourself. Like I, I was like, oh, I don't think I could be funny anymore. And then I was like, you know what? I was funny before I started drinking. I'm sure I can be. But you have to write, rebuild the, yourself and your confidence in that. So, um, as I'm doing that, then I'm starting to progress. I'm realizing that I'm an, uh, I'm an asshole to people at work. So then I started to dig in and start to understand what leadership meant and starting to build that out. But I wouldn't been able to get to that if I wasn't sober. So I needed to be mm. sober first in order to be able to do those, um, those, those, uh, self-improvement techniques and research, uh, because it, I was able to now reflect on myself and say, okay, this is a problem. Now let me go out and try to see if I can solve this problem. As opposed to before that, this is a problem. All right. I already have a solution for that problem. So, uh, and unfortunately I was clean and sober probably, you know, maybe four, four years or so, something like that. Yeah. Um, before my, uh, my father passed. Now, if my father passed and he passed suddenly, so if that happened and I was still drinking, I'm pretty sure that I would have imploded. But mm. the fact that I had those, 
those X amount of years of sobriety, it kind of led me up to this point where now I had to deal with the stress and process it and move forward without this crutch of drinking in order to try to rescue me from the things that I don't really want to deal with. So for everybody listening out there, you're talking about the stress management, like, is there one thing particular that you did that was really, really beneficial in that? Like, is it like looking for the trigger points and knowing what they are and being able to navigate around them or, or what? Explain more about that. It's never one thing. It's like, um, so again, trying to get into self-awareness is a big thing. Like, why are people so annoyed by me? Um, that, that helps. And, um, one of the things that, uh, my wife teaches to like anger management people is to try to, uh, ground this feeling of anger into, or, or stress or anxiety or frustration or whatever it is mm-hmm. grounded into some sort of physical manifestation that's happening at that same exact time. So once you're able to take that moment and realize that I'm living in a little bit of a cloud, mm-hmm. and then I can tie that into the fact that my neck muscles are tight or my shoulders tight, or my breathing is shallow, then I start to realize the, uh, the physical manifestations and that t- kind of, it, it acts like a light switch. It's like, Oh, you're, you're going into a weird area. So now you've got to mm. try to bring it all the way back. So, uh, like I said, the, the practice of mindfulness that helped me out like a ton. Uh, I still use that to this day. Um, and then just trying to say, all right, listen, this, uh, trying to keep myself grounded and centered on who I am and who I want to be, as opposed to the person that I am in this moment, which is not the person I want to be. That's good, man. Yeah. Self-awareness is so important just in leadership in general, you know, um, and, and just knowing who you are as a person. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's so important because we all have the blind spots, right? That, that we don't even realize that we're doing what we're doing, but it's great to have somebody like somebody like your brother who's there to tell you how it is. And that's why I, I whenever I, we're building leadership teams, it's so easy to surround yourself with yes people because it's easy, right? They just say yes yeah. all the time. But if you do that, you're, you know, there's nobody there to hold you accountable. There's nobody yeah, there. The to accountability screw is critical, and the yes person thing sometimes that. Sometimes that happens innately, like, okay, uh, you know, uh, I go out, you know how, like, um, when you're a kid and you're a troublemaker, you always go after the same type of partner, whether it's man or woman or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of like your polar opposite. So it, a similar thing happens when you're in business is that you end up hiring people that, that represent the parts of your personality that are weaker. Right. And if mm-hmm. I'm always strong alpha pushing forward, then I'm tending to hire and lean into people that are uh, receding and more um, uh, able to take direction and yada, yada, yada. So I accidentally, not intentionally, because I really like accountability, um, I accidentally end up surrounding myself with people that either for uh, for the fact that they have a complementary or polar opposite personality to me mm-hmm. or the fact that I'm sitting in the seat and the seat. You know, you, you're talking about having to be um, empathetic, right? These mm-hmm. people are here trying to support their family, right? They want to go home to their family with a job and a paycheck and tell them I did a good job today and, and, and here you go, let's go to Disney or whatever it is. And sometimes conflict or even perceived conflict with a, uh, somebody higher up in the hierarchy mm-hmm. um, could lead to them not being able to provide to their family anymore. So there's some self-preservation in there. So what I have to try to do is try to maintain awareness that my position holds a certain level of influence, whether or not it's intentional, holds influence over the words that I'm saying and over the people that I'm working with. And I have to try to be able to promote them and constantly ask questions like, are you sure that you really agree with what I'm saying? You know, is this something that makes sense? It's Mm -hmm. okay. So, and it's hard for that, even asking those questions. So like the biggest thing that I've found as a leader is to call myself out when I'm doing something wrong. And then by calling myself out, I can now empower them to call me out. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. okay. I can take on the accountability. I just need people that are willing to achieve the the, the mission, not necessarily massage my ego. Mm, That's good, man. Yeah, for everybody listening out there, it, it is so important to diversify your leadership team. And and so I want to ask you more about that, Chris, because is there a certain um, technique that you do there at Island Elevator to help you uh, learn who you're hiring more than just the interview process? Or are, are you just have a pretty innate ability to, to pick out people? 
I wish I, I wish I had more method to the madness. Um, I want to say that, you know, we're using an assessment and then we're, you know, we're introducing people and really mm. I'm just doing it on gut. Uh, yeah. and I've done it wrong. I mean, um, like the, one of my, uh, mentors, uh, Bobby Schaefer says, he's like, if I could, if I could write a book, it would be about how not to do things. So it's, uh, I, I wouldn't suggest that anybody does things the same way as me, but on the same note, I also don't, uh, I, I'm also like a, um, um, not necessarily a move fast and break things type of people, yeah. but uh, make a decision, stay behind it and go through. And if you make a bad decision, then just go ahead and make up for it, move over, pivot, and, and then go somewhere else. So I've made a bunch of bad decisions, uh, and you know, so, you know, not surrounding myself with the wrong people, but sometimes I hire the wrong people and put them in the leadership positions. So mm -hmm. I have to be able to, again, maintain accountability, take the temperature of the room, practice empathy, practice self-awareness. And then I got to pull this person aside. Like I hired one person to, to take a high level uh, leadership position in the company. And I found out later on that, you know, I was just asking him, you know, I was asking a chicken to fly, right? He was a mm -hmm. bird. He looked like a bird. He smelled like a bird, but he just could not fly. <laughs> And when I finally uh, pulled him aside and I said, I don't know if this is working out. This is what I saw. I just saw his, he was like, oh, thank God. You know, I, I feel the same exact way. So it was, um, um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was good for both of us. And then we were able to, you know, help transition to him to a position at a different company. I made some phone calls and we were able to transition him over to a different company where he was in a position that made him happy, made him happy to go home to his family, which is really the most important thing. It is. Yeah. A lot of times we don't realize that when we are miserable as the boss leading other people, um, usually over time, the other person's just as miserable. They just don't oh, say it. Sure. Right. So when you finally clear the air and you finally realize that, hey, this person's on the wrong seat of the bus for one reason or another. And a lot of times it's our, you know, as a leader, we have an expectation of, the, of who we think this person should be. And they're mm -hmm. not, and they're not naturally that person. So you're trying to take a person who's not naturally that person and you're frustrated because they're never going to be the person that you want them to be. So yes. it's important that you uncover that early and in, in communication. And, and that's really comes back to just having an open line of communication to where you're sitting down with that person one-to-one -one and you do it consistently enough that you have trust built, right? Yeah. That they can actually open up to you and share those frustrations. If your communication is just spontaneous, Hey, you got a minute. And it happens once a month or twice a month or whenever it happens, right? They're, and they're never going to open up to you because there's no relationship built there. Yeah, you're you're 100 correct. I couldn't agree with you more. So, Island Elevator, I love your slogan below your name, um, a people first company. Take us through um, first how how you came up with that, and then second, what does that look like there? Like when you say well, people first company. How we describe People First Company is that we make every decision in the best interest of the people first. Yeah. So uh, we we prioritize safety. It's about making sure that people are going out there and they're getting the right training and they're getting the right safety and the right PPE and the right support, right? And you're not asking them to do something that's going to make themselves, put themselves in a position where they're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to support the, uh, our people in that way out in the field. Uh, we want to support our people uh, in the office or, you know, across the entire uh, organization by, all right, listen, you know, I got to leave today and I got to go, you know, I got to leave at 12 o'clock and go get, um, pick up my kids from school because the babysitter's sick or this, that, and the third, or I, mm -hmm. I got to take my dog to the vet or I got to do this or I got to do that. All right, fine. Just do your thing. You know, we want to be able to support you so that you feel good about coming to work. You don't feel resentful about coming to work. So we want to be able to support the people because they live. They don't just live inside Island Elevator. I live inside Island Elevator, but not everybody else does. And that took me a long time <laughs> to realize, too. So they 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 have a whole life. They have things that they care about. That we want to be able to support that. And we don't want you to choose between um, uh, work and, and home, we want it to be more complimentary. Hmm. And then as far as the, uh, our, on our customer side, you know, we look at the people first. So what do we got to do to support our customers and their tenants and the riders of the elevators? Because we want to make sure that every 
everything is up to compliance. Every repair is getting executed to a high high level that we're mm-hmm. exercising every possible safety measure in order to protect the public that uh we're making recommendations that are credible and and can be you know verified by any professional within our industry uh so that we're not we're, we're looking to make sure that the people are getting what they need from us because we're in the people industry uh mm-hmm. the way that i always say it is that um if we uh, if Island Elevator closed down tomorrow and I took my entire team and we went out and uh, and sold hot dogs instead, we would do it the same exact way. Right. We would put the people first. So mm-hmm. um, how do we come up with that? We came up with that uh, during covid because covid hit us like uh, a ton of bricks. Um, obviously, we were the epicenter of covid there for a little while. Yeah. Uh, so March hit. And then uh, later on in March, early in April, our senior technician, the guy who had been with the company for the longest amount of time, he got COVID and then died 10 years, 10 days later. Oh, so man. that really like kind of crushed everybody. And then wow. they're shutting down everything. And uh, now all of a sudden we're working remote and we're doing this, that and the third. And uh, we didn't have any PPE. There was no PPE to be had. So I went ahead and I got online. I did uh, Alibaba. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's like a supply uh, website where you can get stuff directly from China. So I opened up supply lines directly to China so that I could get uh, the K95 masks and the the gloves and the, the hand sanitizer and all the things that we needed. And it was just hell be damned. We got it. We got to make sure that everybody kind of survives this thing because we thought we were all going to die. Um, so we just, and then people were coming in, like we had one guy that got COVID and then he, you know, we didn't know about the, how contagious it was. So he ended up spending like six weeks at home. We paid him for the entire time so that he could make sure that he was able to feed his family. And then he came back and then there was some, it it reacted to his optical nerve. The guy went blind. So he went back there and then they ended up giving him like uh, steroids and he's got his sight back. He's perfect. He's fine now. He's a little fat. But other than that, (laughs) he can see everything. He can't squeeze through the door, but he can see the door. Um, He's he's a, uh, you know, we, we just made decisions that were in the best interest of the people. So listen, we're not going to keep people together. We're going to, we're going to spend extra money on, on dividers in the offices. We're going to give everybody computers, stay home, you know, be with your family, just try to keep in touch with the customers. So we just did, we made every decision in that first six to 18 months based solely on, um, on making sure that we do our best, take care of our people. And we didn't lay off anybody. Nobody got laid off. So after that, I realized, I said, we're not an elevator service company. We're a people first company. We're in the people business. Mm -hmm. So that's when, uh, right during COVID, that's when we decided to rebrand the company. It used to be Island Elevator, Long Island's uh, premier elevator service company. How freaking boring is that? (laughs) So seeing that go, I was fine with that. Yeah, I, I, Chris, I do love y'all's shirts too. On the back, it, it says a people first company. And then it says, how can I help? How can I help? Yeah, I yeah. love that because, uh, again, we're looking to make connections. We're looking to make it real. And um, a lot of these guys, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was just talking to one of my uh, one of my guys the other day and he's like, what? I'm like, uh, I said, it says on your back. He didn't even know what it was saying on the back of his shirt. He's like, is that why everybody keeps coming up to me when I'm in the building? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. You know, you think back to. Yeah, I think back to how I was raised in the trades. Right. And uh, some of the slogans you'd hear is. The customer is always right, and uh, you should never bring your personal life to work. Mm. But, you know, if you're still leading a business like that, uh, you know that day and age is is long gone because personal life and work definitely coexist, and uh, and it's really more about investing in your team so your team can invest in your customer. That's 100%. really what the next generation wants to see. So it's it's just you know uh, there's there's definitely a generational leadership gap. And I think there's certain people like you that are seeing that. And though you were ra- maybe raising the, in the trades a certain way, you're not continuing that because it's, it's the way it's always been done, right? You're seeing the opportunity and you're moving towards it. And it's probably helping you in attracting, retaining your top team members in your company, you know, and helping you grow. Oh, so. yeah. We don't have, we, nobody leaves Island Elevator. That's, you know, I, I, I'm part of a CEO group and they're talking about, uh, you know, how do we retain? How do we retain? I'm like, why don't you stop treating your people like shit? And then they won't want to leave. 
I, I, one guy in my group, he's a uh, CEO group. And he's like, oh, you know, I got this woman. She left. And then she she didn't tell me why. And then she gave me like some I was like, listen, dude, if she's not telling you why and you don't know why I could tell you why it's you. You're the reason why she left. Whatever <laughs> it is that you're building over there is a problem. You know, so uh, uh, everything that we push into here is about culture, 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 culture. We yeah. want people we want. Pe and you're right about, uh, you know, leave your home life at home. That's not real. You know, this is we see work as an extension of your home life. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things that we have, we got like a big whiteboard, which is like some inspirational quotes. So when you walk into Island Elevator, what you see on the top of the whiteboard is that we don't work for Island Elevator. We work for each other. And that's what we're trying to accomplish here is to be able to build a, a, a high level, common goal, team oriented atmosphere. And then when you have something like that, where it feels like you're not leaving your family to come to work, you're leaving your family to come to your work family, it it it, it resonates more. And people are not only uh, they don't want to leave because they feel like they're letting other people down. They're also attracted to that. So people want to come to Island Elevator because they see that we have principles that we stand behind. Wow. We don't work for Island Elevator. We work for each other. That's pretty powerful. That, uh, yeah, that's really cool. Talk about teamwork, right? Just yeah. changes the like, whole mindset. And, and just take the, take the label off and throw it out. It doesn't matter. We're just people here all trying to achieve a common goal. It doesn't matter if we change the shirt, we change the logo, we change the industry. We're going to do the same exact thing. So we got to start there in order to be able to build forward. So I'm going to ask you an elevator question now. I know we're kind of coming, coming to a wrap on the show here, but got a couple more questions for you. Yeah. Being, a, being a plumber in the trades, I have no idea about elevators. So tell me something new. What's something that most people don't know about elevators that uh, is kind of cool or unique? Boy, this is a tough one. Because I think everything is cool and unique, and it's all <laughs> like secondhand knowledge to me now. So I don't realize that you don't know it. Um, obviously the most common one is that you can tap that whole button as much as you want. The elevator does not come any faster. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, uh, let me see. Some of the elevators, some of these elevators are moving through, uh, these, uh, high speed, um, especially in high rise buildings. Yeah. Uh, and the taller that they get, they could be going anywhere between, uh, 1200 foot a minute all the way up to like 2200 foot a minute, which we're talking about being inside a car that's traveling at about, uh, 25 to 30 miles an hour through the, to the center of the building in a vertical direction. Wow. So uh, there's no seats, no seat belts. And that's why uh, car control is a, and motion control is a huge thing when we're talking about safety. Uh, and then I, um, I never verified this, but this is what, um, you know, elevator guys talk about is that uh, when you're traveling, especially at these excessively high speeds, the biggest thing that you have to keep into consideration is the slowdown distance, right? So uh, when we're talking about in a low rise elevator, maybe you're slowing down over the course of like 24 inches. Yeah. But in a high rise elevator that's shooting up at those types of speeds, you're slowing down over like say 10 floors, right? Over a hundred feet, they start to slow down. Mm -hmm. Because what they found out is that if you start to slow down too soon, you can actually create a moment of weightlessness inside the car. And, uh, or, or excuse me, if you slow down too quickly, then yeah. you can create a, a moment of weightlessness inside the car, which is like the same principle that they do when they're training astronauts and they bring them up in the plane and then they bring them down in the plane. Have you ever seen that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it mimics uh, weightlessness. And some people, when they hit a moment of weightlessness, they actually lose their bladder. So, <laughs> I didn't know that. I is didn't that know interesting? That. I don't that's know. Pretty, that's pretty interesting. No, that's pretty cool. So, you know, for like the the apprentices that are like the younger generation they're they find it fascinating they want to get into the elevator trade like like where would you point them is it like hey go join one of the big union companies or kind of like like what's the first place you can't really point? join the union company that yeah. much so uh the union company they do get a quota where they're able to hire outside of the union hall mm -hmm. but uh, most of them are hiring through the union hall so yeah. here in new york you've got uh the local one elevator constructors union and then you have the local three elevator constructors excuse me elevator uh elevator union it's part of um it's part of the um, uh, electricians uh, union, IBEW. So they have a division for uh, elevators. Mm -hmm. So you'd go down to the union hall, you'd sign up. And then when they have, uh, it's their version of like open enrollment. Mm -hmm. And then they'll bring you in, they'll give you a qualifying test. And then they'll put you on a list. And then if you do good enough on the test, you get picked up over the list. You're going to get an opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, 
um, as far as the elevator trade is concerned, you kind of got to know somebody that's in the elevator trade. So uh, I am not, I, I'm an open shop. I'm not a un, uh, union signatory company. Mm -hmm. So if I saw somebody with some, uh, some moxie, some potential uh, level of commitment, level of seriousness, mm -hmm. uh, then I might give them an opportunity. And with us, mm -hmm. we find that the best people that come in through the door as apprentices are actually in like that late 20s, 27, 28, 29 age. They've mm -hmm. gone out, they've they've jerked around, they've had like, uh, you know, a dozen crappy jobs so that they actually see that what we're providing is a value. And mm -hmm. then they come in and um, they, they, they make the most of the opportunity because they don't yeah. want to have to get kicked back out into the real world again. Um, so th those are basically the two ways. There's not a, there's not a whole, there's not like a sidebar or anything like that. The elevator demographically, the elevator trade compared to the rest of the skilled trades is very, very small. So when you're talking about a big building, you might have hundreds of plumbers and, and hundreds and hundreds of electricians. Uh, you might only have like 10 or so elevator tradesmen. So the, and we're talking about, you know, if there was like 10 or 20 elevators in the building, if there's, if we're talking about like, say for example, um, uh, a regular like storage facility or something like that. There might be one or two elevators. So you might have all of these uh, other trades working inside there. Yeah. But if there's only, there's only two elevator men or two elevator tradespersons in each shaft at any given time. So if there's two elevators there, you're not going to have more than four elevator people, even if it's mm -hmm. like seven stories, eight stories, 10 stories. Okay. So we're demographically, we're very small. So it's harder and harder to get in. But what I tell the new generation, and if you're, if I could speak directly to them right now, okay. the new generation has a problem where they want to go ahead and vacation at different jobs. We are not an Airbnb. You're not coming in and spending six weeks here and then deciding that you're going to go over there and then deciding that you're going to go over here and you're just going to, you know, uh, Baskin Robbins 31 flavors. That's fine somewhere else but that's not okay here as far as the elevator trade is concerned we need a high level of commitment because we spend a ton of money on training hmm. you as an apprentice are basically useless for four years so we need to be able to look people in the eye that are ready to make a four to six year commitment to coming in here and becoming a mechanic mm -hmm. before we're going to go ahead and feel good about bringing you on board so if you're interested in the elevator trade, then go watch a YouTube video. If you want to be an elevator professional, then you need to state as such and be ready for that level of commitment when you come into the door and you sit down with a prospective employer. Do not give them some BS uh, uh, you know, resume where it's showing that you've been spending two months here, there, here, there, 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 and then be surprised when they don't hire you because hmm. we, it cost us too much money to have you come in and then churn you back out and then find somebody else, right? Yeah, we need to come good. in with commit. When we're talking about the trades, same thing with the plumbers, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing with the electricians. Come mm -hmm. in with the four-year mindset, okay? Because anything less than that is just going to be wasting everybody's time. That's very true. That's very true. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's been so much value here to unpack, you know, for the audience. And uh, I've learned so much for, from you. So I really appreciate you and, and the time you spent with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you to the uh, Built for the Trades uh, fan base. Um, and, uh, and hopefully we get to talk again soon. All right, man. Thank you.